angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abba Ezraite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now, the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until your return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from the ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offering them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared out of the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel he exclaimed, terrified, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. 
you are not going to die. The word of the Lord. Spring is so good at that. It's like she was sitting right there at the oak tree watching. (laughs) Thank you, Spring. You have a gift. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know we are in a series called Legacy, where we are looking at people from the Bible who have been used by God in profound ways. And not all these people were perfect by any means. Some of them made many mistakes. Some of them sinned in some profound ways, and yet they all left legacies. And what we want to do is look at their life, look at their life lessons, and try to apply them to our lives in our current time so that we too can leave a legacy for good. That's our goal during this season, and I believe that's what's going to happen. Now, in the book of Judges, which is where uh, we were looking at today in the life of Gideon, we see a pattern taking place, a, a cycle that seems to happen over and over again. The people of Israel are following God. They're in alignment with God. Their hearts are aligned with God. But then they become complacent. They become complacent and they fall away from God. Then God allows some sort of power, some sort of um, nation, a military might to come in and take siege over the Israelites They become oppressed for a season until they call out to the Lord and repent. The Lord hears their cry, and then he responds. He sends a judge, someone to deliver them. They are delivered. They are in alignment with God once again, and then they become complacent again. The cycle begins again. Over and over again, we see this happening in the book of Judges and all throughout the history of Israel. And I think that's important to take note of. Now, during the time of Gideon, the Israelites were under captivity by the Midianites, a very, very powerful nomadic force who would come in once a year right around harvest time, right around harvest time, and they would pillage everything. They would take all of their crops, they would destroy their homes, they would steal their cattle, they would steal their sheep, they would steal their camels, they would just take everything, leaving them absolutely destitute, and then they would disappear for months or maybe even another year until the next harvest came around. This happened seven years in a row. Seven years in a row. Now, you can't imagine living like that. Uh, Trying to rebuild after everything that you've had has been devastated. And right when you get things back to normal again, right when you've rebuilt your crops, right when you have enough to to return to normal, here comes the Midianites again. They come sweeping in and they take everything yet again. Seven years this happened. Seven years. And it took seven years before the Israelites decided, we need to start crying out to God again. So they start calling out to God They start repenting of their sins, and God hears their cries, and he does something about it. He brings a new judge, a new judge by the name of Gideon. Now, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon as he was threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, this should tell you a little about what's happening in this environment. A wine press is a deep hole 
that is lined with rocks, and it's used for making wine. You would throw the grapes into the wine press. They would jump into the wine press, crush the grapes with their feet. The juice would ultimately be turned into wine. But Gideon is not making wine. He's threshing wheat. He's inside a hole threshing wheat, which is counterintuitive. Because when you're threshing wheat, the objective is to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so what you would do if you were threshing wheat is you would go out into an open field where there was a breeze. And you would thresh the wheat so the wind would naturally carry the chaff away. But Gideon is in a hole where there's no breeze. So every time he's thrashing the wheat, the chaff is falling down into the same place where he's trying to get the It's a, it's a disaster. He's in a terrible situation, but he's there because he's fearful that the Midianites might see him threshing the wheat and come and steal his grain. And he knows he needs it to support his family. Okay? So he's in an impossible situation. He's fearful. He's hiding. And suddenly, he hears this voice. Suddenly, Gideon hears the words, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, that's ironic. Okay? Gideon is the least of his tribe. He's hiding in a wine press. He's scared to death that the Midianites might come. And suddenly he hears this voice, which you could imagine would have startled him because he's hoping, you know, that he can do this in secrecy. And the Lord, the angel of the Lord says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Mighty warrior. Gideon didn't see himself as a mighty warrior. He saw himself as nothing. All he was was a, a farmer who was just doing what he had to do to get by. He didn't see himself as having any unusual talents or clout. He's just a nobody. But the Lord says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. When the Lord declares Gideon as a mighty warrior... He is placing on him a new identity. He's giving him a new identity. Gideon doesn't see it of himself, but the Lord sees something that Gideon doesn't see. The Lord sees something that the world doesn't see. And this isn't the first time that God does this in Scripture. He called Abraham the father of many nations before he had any children of his own. He called Moses the deliverer of Israel when he was hiding in the desert trying to dodge a manslaughter charge. He's raising sheep as far away from the epicenter of what's happening in the world as he can be. And the Lord shows up to him and says, you are the deliverer of Israel. Jesus calls Peter the rock on which he will build his church. And Peter, at the time, was the most inconsistent of all of the disciples. Okay? Do you see a pattern here? God is looking for people that don't think much of themselves. That don't see themselves as having all that and a bag of chips. He's looking for people that recognize that their, their strength, their abilities are limited. So that God can use a person like that so that his power and his glory will be made manifest. God says a few things about you 
as well, if you look through the scriptures. There are many promises that are directed at you today. He says that you're a child of God, that you're his child. He says that you're his friend. He says that you're justified. He says that you're forgiven. He says that you are more than a conqueror. He says that you are his workmanship, that you've been created for good works. And the list goes on and on. There are so many promises that are designed to speak right into your life that rest upon you if you're willing to claim them. They are for you because God sees something in you that you may not see in yourself. Isn't that amazing? So if you're feeling downcast, hopeless, defeated, or fearful, similar to what Gideon was feeling, you're in a good position. You're in a good position because you can speak the truth of God over your life and over the life of your family, and you can claim the power and authority that God has given you so that you can go out and do amazing things in the same way that Gideon did amazing things. And we're going to see what God does through Gideon. The second takeaway from the life of Gideon is that we must trust and obey God despite our circumstances. We must trust and obey God despite our circumstances. The angel of the Lord said to Gideon, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Now, I think this is a very interesting and unusual piece of scripture right here. Because did you notice that the angel of the Lord doesn't say, go in the strength of the Lord or in the power of the Spirit. Look what he says. He says, go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Gideon doesn't have much strength. He doesn't have much to offer, but the Lord is saying, you use what you have. Use what I have given you, and then stand back and watch what I can do. Use what you have. God is helping Gideon to see that the key to being victorious is not about our strength, not about our skill set, not about our clout or our our network. It, It isn't about any of those things. The key to our success resides in our ability to trust and obey God. That's all we have to do. We have to trust and obey God and then develop the confidence that God will use what we can bring along with our trust and obedience of him and that he will take care of the rest. He's got it. He's got you. Now, Gideon clearly has an inferiority complex. He thinks very little of himself. He's naturally fearful. But he turns out to be an incredibly successful leader. Why? Because there's one area where Gideon shines. He is awesome when it comes to trusting and obeying God when God tells him to do something. He never wavers. He always follows through. And that turns out to be his secret weapon. What would it look like for you to trust and obey God in every area of your life. What would, look like, what would that look like for you? 
You have to think about the circumstances that are going on in your life right now and ask yourself, if I was able to trust and obey God 100% in all of this that's going on in my life, what would have to change? What would that look like? The difference between failure and victory in our lives may be that simple. It may be the difference between trusting and obeying or trying to do things in our own strength and in our own power. It's very simple. Now, the third takeaway from Gideon's life has to do with idols. We need to tear down our idols and worship God in their place. Now, right after Gideon's encounter with the angel of the Lord, right after that encounter, the Lord tells Gideon that he needs to tear down the idols that are built on his father's property. Basically, in Gideon's backyard, there were idols that had been built to Baal. Remember Baal from last week? You heard Brian talk about it. In Judges 6, 25 and 26, it says that that same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, cut down the Asherah pole beside it, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord, your God, on top of its height, using the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Now, when the Israelites fell away from the Lord, and this would frequently take place, the cycle that I was talking about. When the Israelites would fall away from the Lord, they would oftentimes adopt foreign gods, idols. And Baal was one of the most popular. Remember uh, when Brian was talking about uh, Elijah calling fire down from the sky to burn up the altar and it ended up killing all the, all, the, all the disciples of Baal. That's the God we're talking about. That same idol is, is showing up again here. Now, while Gideon believed that God was the true God, the one true God, he and his family were willing, at least willing to allow an idol to Baal be set up in their own yard. In their own backyard. Now, Baal was associated uh, with agriculture. That was, that was the kind of God or the deity that, that the, the Israelites believed. It was actually a Canaanite deity. But it was believed that Baal had absolute control over people. That he was the giver of life. And it was also believed that Baal was the God that provided everything that was necessary to sustain farms, flocks, and herds. So you can see how a deity like this would become very popular in an agrarian society where you're farming. Okay? So they're, they're praying to this false god, hoping that they're going to you know, have amazing crops and that they're going to be blessed. So my question to you and to Gideon, is, is it possible to worship God, the one true God, but also have idols in your life at the same time? Is it possible to have that? Apparently, God doesn't think so. So God instructs Gideon to tear those idols down. 
So Gideon took 10 of his servants, and he did exactly what the Lord told him to do. He tore them down. He built an altar for God in its place, and he worshiped God. Now, any time that we worship anything other than God, or we put anything in priority above God, we fall into idolatry. It's really unlikely that we would have an idol set up in our apartment, right? It's really unlikely in this day and age. But that doesn't mean that we don't struggle with idolatry. How many times do we put things before God? Or it becomes God plus something else. So we have this sense of security. What are some real-life examples of this? Some real-life examples of having God plus something else or allowing something to exist alongside of something that is true. My wife, and I know this is very controversial, my wife feels very strongly that we should not allow Santa or the Easter Bunny to have any part of our culture. And we've had a lot of arguments around this because I grew up in a family where we believe very much in God, the one true God. But we always thought, you know, having Santa and the Easter Bunny were just fun things. And so we, we would celebrate that too. And Elizabeth and I have gone back and forth on this many times. But here's the thing. If those things are detracting from the true meaning of the two most sacred events in our faith, the birth of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And my daughter, who's four years old, believes that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ by searching for chocolate eggs that an Easter bunny left for her. I have a hard time arguing with my wife, right? Now, I'm not saying that we worship the Easter bunny or Santa, but if that message that has been put alongside the true meaning of what God is trying to instill in our hearts and our minds and it becomes a distraction or a distorting uh, element, we have to ask ourselves some questions, some difficult questions. Now, maybe another example in our modern-day society might just be power or influence. Brian talked about this last week when he was sharing about Billy Graham. You know, here's Billy Graham, the most influential Christian since the Apostle Paul. More people have come to Christ because of Billy Graham's ministry than anyone else ever. My father came to Christ by going to a Billy Graham crusade in 1947. I mean, I just, the, the, the ripple effect on this man's life is so incredibly profound. But he admits, just like Brian was telling us, that during the Nixon era, he became fairly close with Richard Nixon, and the power and influence that he could wield because of those relationships were so intoxicating that it became an idol in his life. And he later had to repent of that. So maybe power or prestige or maybe just money. We worship God. We love God. But there's something about our material possessions that give us this sense of security. That, and we wonder, I wonder, if God took all of that away all at once, would we be able to worship God in the same way that we do with those things? And if we can't, then it means we're worshiping God plus 
something else. And God is saying that he wants to be an audience of one. It wasn't until Gideon had dealt with those idols that the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Gideon deals with the idols, puts them out of his life, and immediately the spirit of the Lord comes upon him in power. Do you want the spirit of the Lord to come upon you in power? I think this is, this is trying to tell us something. Now, immediately after the idols are torn down and he worshipped, the Midianites and the Amalekites, these are the two groups that are coming to war against Israel. Remember, they came every year by the thousands and wiped out everything that they had. Here they come. Only this time, it's not a problem. It's not a problem this time because the spirit of the Lord had come upon Gideon and the Lord had already told Gideon that he was going to be responsible for delivering Israel. So instead of hiding in the caves like they had done in the past and just let the Midianites come in and take everything, he took out a trumpet and he blew a trumpet and then he sent messengers all throughout Manasseh to gather all the men to come forward and to fight against the Midianites, and 32,000 men show up. 32,000 men. You can bet that Gideon was just like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. He's looking at 32,000 men, and he's like, the Lord is really going to do this. And they start marching toward uh, the place where the Midianites and the Amalekites are camped. And when they get there, they realize that the Amalekites... And the Midians have 130,000 men. Okay, now Gideon's not so excited about this 32,000. He's like, oh my gosh. And he has this momentary crisis of faith. Momentary crisis of faith. But, the, but God had told him that he would do this. And so Gideon is still trusting God. He's just worried. Now, in his worry, he turns to the Lord and he says, Lord, I, I need a sign. I, I need you to build up my confidence. I need you to convince me that, that you're still in this with me because there's a lot of guys down there. And so in Judges 6, 36 through 40, it says that Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. And if there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, I will know that you will save Israel by my hand. And that's what happened. Gideon arose early the next day and he squeezed the fleece and he wrung out the dew into a bowl full of water. Now, that's pretty impressive, but Gideon just wants to be sure. So he says, do not be angry with me, Lord. Do not, do not be angry with me, but let me take just one more request to you. Allow me one more test with this fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. And that night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and the ground was covered with dew. And that, that reaffirmed what God was going to do through Gideon. 
God extended some grace to Gideon because of his lack of confidence. So Gideon took his 32,000 men and he camped at the spring of Herod. And he could see the Midianite army. And it was there that the Lord said, 32,000 men is too many, Gideon. So what I'd like for you to do, Gideon, is I'd like for you to send all the men home that are fearful. Ask them if they are fearful, and if they are, send those home. 22,000 of the men left. 22,000 left. So Gideon is standing there now with 10,000, and you can bet that was a pretty big blow to morale. Two-thirds of his guys are walking home. He's looking at 130,000 strong that he's going to have to go up against. And he's thinking, I'm supposed to lead these guys. How, what am I supposed to say to these 10,000 at this point? And God says, 10,000 is too many, Gideon. Lead all your men down to the water. And so they all go down to the water. And since they've been hiking and, you know, they've been out in the heat, they all, they all drink from the water. And then the Lord says, now, Gideon, send all of the men home that lapped up the water, that put their face to the water. Well, apparently a lot of them liked putting their face in the water because only 300 were left after that. 300 guys. 300 guys. Do you know what the odds were at that point? 433 to 1. Then the Lord says, with the 300 that drank with their hands, the ones that got down on their knees and lifted the water to their mouth, as opposed to putting their face in the water, those are the men that will lead you to victory. Those are the men. Then the Lord instructed Gideon to divide the 300 into three groups. Three groups. And he said, give each of the men a pitcher... And a torch. And line up 100 on this side of the valley. 100 on the other side of the valley. And then the other 100 in the valley. So they have a pitcher and a torch. And they have a trumpet. They have three things. A pitcher, a torch, and a trumpet. No weapons, mind you. So they do as the Lord instructs. And in the middle of the night, Gideon gives them a sign. He said, when I give you the sign, I want you to break the pitcher, because the torch was being hid inside the pitcher. I want you to break the pitcher, and I want you to scream the sword of the Lord and Gideon, and then take your trumpet and blow it as loud as you can. So that's what happens. These guys line up. One group on one side of the valley, the other on the other, and then one in the valley. And in the middle of the night, Gideon gives the sign. They all break their pitchers. They hold up their, their torches. They scream, the sword of the Lord, and Gideon, and then they take up their trumpets, and they blow them as loud as they can. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night to a loud crash? Something falls in your house, and you're like, oh! And you, can't, you don't even know your name at that point. You don't know where you are. You don't know what's going on. 
And maybe you jump up and you kind of run around and look, but you have, you're kind of bewildered. That was the plan. Do this in the middle of the night where all the Midianites are sleeping, the Amalekites are sleeping, they're in their tents. They know they're there to engage in war. They know where the Israelites are. They wake up in the middle of the night and they go into an absolute panic. An absolute panic. They run out of their tents and the Amalekites and the Midianites, two different nationalities, different dialects, they're confused and they start attacking one another. And before the end of the night, 122,000 Midianite and Amalekites are dead. And the only thing that the 300 had to do was make a bunch of noise for the Lord. They're just standing off to the side watching this take place. Can you believe that? The fourth takeaway from the life of Gideon is that we must give God the glory. We must give God the glory. Did you notice what Gideon instructed the men to shout? The sword of the Lord and Gideon. It's almost like an afterthought. But the Lord is the one that that owns the battle. And Gideon knows it. God is looking for people who are interested, first and foremost, in giving God the glory. When God does something in your life that's really profound, something really good happens, you do something really amazing, and someone comes up to you and says, wow, you are awesome. That was really great. What is your first response? Do you say, why, thank you? (laughs) Or do you say, you know what? It was awesome, and I give God the glory. It's all God. God did that through me. Because that's where we need to go. That's where we need to get. The fifth and final takeaway from Gideon's life is that God works through his power and not ours. He works through his power and not ours. How often do we hear about great evangelists or, or leaders that are able to, to, to start revivals that, that bring thousands and thousands of people to the Lord? And you just think, how is it possible for these people to do this? You know, how is it possible? The thing that we need to remember is the power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. A supernatural power that flows through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is in us when the Holy Spirit is residing in us. And that means that same power is available to us. So when God calls us to a divine appointment, all we have to do is harness the power that is already within us through the power of Jesus, and we can do miraculous things. We can step out in boldness that we could never do in our own strength. Gideon and his army went up against 130,000 trained soldiers, and they didn't even bother to take weapons because they didn't have to. Now, some of those soldiers may have been thinking, what are we doing? 
But Gideon was able to convince them that the Lord was in control. And so they trusted and they obeyed him and the Lord took care of the rest. So the question for us is this. Are you willing to embrace the identity that God has given you? Not the identity that you've dreamed up for yourself or that others have put upon you, but the identity that God is giving you. Are you willing to embrace that identity? Are you willing to trust and obey despite your circumstances? Sometimes when we get into the middle of something, we get so dejected and so discouraged that we don't even want to pray. We don't even want to look to God. But are you willing to trust and obey despite your circumstances? Because that's what Gideon did. Are you willing to tear down your idols and trust that God is enough? Are you willing to do that? You have to think about what those might be. Are you willing to give God the glory when you see God moving and working in and through your life and you start experiencing victory? Are you going to take the glory or are you going to give it to God? That's something you have to ask yourself. And finally, are you willing to work through God's power and not your own? Many of us in here have lots of talent. We are in the city where everybody moves to when they want to be the best of the best. So my guess is you could do a lot of things for God's kingdom in your own strength. But if you really want to see things happen, you're going to have to step into another realm. And you're going to have to allow the spirit to supersede anything that you're trying to do in your own strength. And if you're willing to go there, you are going to see amazing things happen around you. That's when things are going to get really exciting. And that's when, when we can say yes to each of these questions, that's when the Lord is going to look at you and he's going to say that you are a mighty warrior. You are a mighty warrior. Regardless of how you feel about yourself right now, he will say you are a mighty warrior because I am with you. Isn't that awesome? That's such an awesome thing. I want to pray for this. I want to pray for this for me, my family. I want to pray it over you. I want to pray an anointing of the Holy Spirit to just rest upon you today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I just pray that all of these questions would be yes for us. That it would be yes for our families. That it would be yes for us individually, Lord. That we would have the courage to say yes to these things. That we would invite your spirit, uh, as Stephanie did earlier in the service, to just rest on this place to rest in us, Lord, and that we would recognize that we have you, the power of your spirit, the power of the risen Christ residing on us, in us, around us, and that we can harness it by the name of Jesus. Lord, we don't want any place for the enemy to have any influence over us or our families. Lord, we claim that in the name of Jesus. Lord, we want to be mighty warriors in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have the opportunity at this point to come to the table. And uh, I love the fact that at Trinity, we have the opportunity to do this every week because it is really the power of the risen Christ 
that gives us the kind of authority that we can harness in the way that Gideon did. Can you imagine standing just a few feet away from an army of 130,000 people and all you have is a trumpet, a torch, and some broken pitchers? And yet being able to stand in absolute confidence because it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the power of God. And he can tear down anything that comes against us. In fact, he promises that he will. And the way he does it in our lives is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when we come to the table, we celebrate that. We're not only celebrating his love and his presence in our lives, but we're celebrating the fact that he has done it so that we could be empowered. So that we could do the things that he would do if he were standing in our shoes. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that that was available to them. And so he said around the table, as they were having a meal, take the bread. This bread is my body broken for you. Take it and eat. You know, when you eat something, it becomes part of you. And then he took the the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out as a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. When you're forgiven, you're free. You're free to stand victoriously. And he said, drink this in remembrance of me. And they all drank. And now, all these years later, he invites us to come to the table and to drink in the same way that his disciples did so that we can remember the authority that we have to stand victoriously in spite of our circumstances. And so at Trinity, we do it every week. And we invite you to come not by yourself, but together with people around you that can celebrate with you because we are the body of Christ. We are his children. And we are heirs to everything that he has offered to his children. He's the king. And what's that make you and me? Princes and princesses. We're royalty. So claim your inheritance. In the name of Jesus, come when you're ready.